today is from uh, 1 Samuel chapter 31. As we come to that, let's pray. Our Lord, uh, we, we come uh, before you now uh, to hear you speak to us through your word. Uh, Lord, your word is uh, precious to us uh, because it is truth. Uh, in this world, Lord, we find it hard to see the truth. We uh, find it hard to discern uh, what is right. And yet your word comes to us so truly and speaks so specifically uh, to our lives, Lord. It is a treasure beyond words. We thank you for it. We pray, Lord, that you would bless it to our hearts and our minds today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. First Samuel, chapter 31. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites fled before them and many fell slain on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines pressed hard after Saul and his sons and they killed his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab and Malkishua. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. And Saul said to his armour-bearer, Draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. But the armour-bearer was terrified and would not do it, so Saul took his own sword and fell on it. When the armour-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons and his armour-bearer and all his men died together that same day. When the Israelites along the valley and those across the Jordan saw that the Israelite army had fled and that Saul and his sons had died, they abandoned their towns and fled, and the Philistines came and occupied them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head and stripped off his armour and they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among their people. They put his armour in the temple of the Ashtoreths and fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. When the people of Jabesh-Gilead heard of what the Philistines had done to Saul, all their valiant men journeyed through the night to Bethshan. They took down the bodies of Saul and his sons from the wall of Bethshan and went to Jabesh where they burned them. And they took their bones and buried them under a tamarisk tree at Jabesh, and they fasted seven days. Amen. Uh, today uh, we come uh, to the last chapter of the book of Samuel, uh, or at least the first of the books of Samuel. And it's a sad story. Um, my wife likes to know the ending of a movie before she watches it or the end of a book before she watches it. And if she jumped to the end of this one, she may not have read it at all. Uh, it is uh, a sad ending in many respects. Uh, but there are lights of hope uh, within it as well, though they are hard to see. Now Saul knew God, uh, but he rebelled so much against the Lord. A couple of chapters ago, Samuel even said to Saul, the Lord has turned away from you and become your enemy. 
Samuel told Saul he and his sons would die. And now we see that fulfilled. There is not a lot of joy in this passage. There is death and there is more death. There is tragedy. But there is hope. Hope for those who remained and hope even for those who died. And that means hope for us too. Verse 1 says, uh, The Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites fled before them and many fell slain on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines pressed hard after Saul and his sons and they killed his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab and Malkishua. The fighting grew fierce around Saul and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. Saul said to his armour bearer, draw your sword and run me through or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. But his armour bearer was terrified and would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. This was the death of Saul, his end. But not just his, but his sons too. And it was God's judgment falling on his family line. More specifically, on Saul's royal reign. It had come about because Saul did not obey the Lord. Saul didn't wait for Samuel and offered sacrifices to God without authority. And at that time, the prophet Samuel told Saul that Saul's kingdom would not last. Saul didn't obey the Lord when he failed to bring the Lord's judgment against the Amalekites and instead sought to profit from the battle instead. It was then that Samuel told Saul that God had rejected him as king. And Saul broke the law of the Lord when he asked a spiritist to call up Samuel. And there Samuel told Saul that he and his sons would die in battle the next day. And so it is Saul's disobedience that has led to the Lord's judgment falling upon him and his sons. And Saul's reign has come to an end. God's judgment was brought to bear. And what the Lord had said would happen, happened just as he said. In the end, Saul tried taking his own life. And as it turns out, it didn't quite work. In 2 Samuel chapter 1, we find out that there was actually an Amalekite of all people Uh, who answered Saul's call to end his life before the Philistines reached him. So he fell on his own sword, but it didn't do the trick in the end. Saul rebelled against God, and he had no relationship at all with God. And in these verses, there is no sign of repentance in Saul. No sign that he sought forgiveness from God in his last moments. And though he may have, he may not have. And his sons and his guard and all his men died with him. But what is worse is that Israel also lost the battle. And it was a great loss. Verse 7 says, When the Israelites along the valley and those across the Jordan saw that the Israelite army had fled and Saul and his sons had died, they abandoned their towns and fled. And the Philistines came and occupied them. This is a massive loss for Israel. The enemy now occupied towns even to the east of the Jordan River. The Jordan River runs down what was the middle of the land of Israel in those days. And strictly speaking, the promised land was actually on the western side of the river. But Israel had now fled from it. Effectively, Israel is being forced out of the land that the Lord God had given to them. This is not just Saul's loss, but Israel's loss. This is not just the end of the king and his sons, but a judgment that came firmly down upon the people of Israel too. 
And what, why did they suffer in this way? Surely God could have arranged it so that Israel prevailed, but Saul and his sons died. Why does Israel need to suffer such a loss? Well, to understand what this is about, we need to look at the bigger picture. When Saul was first chosen to be king, it came at a time when the people called for a king like the other nations. Their demands displeased the Lord. At the time, there was a king of Israel... The Lord was their king. And this was known by the people. The Lord was in charge. And therefore the call from the people for a king like the other nations was actually a rejection of the Lord as king. But despite that, the Lord God granted their request and appointed a king through Samuel. And at first Saul was a good king. There were things to speak of in his favour. He was an impressive fellow, humble enough, caring, but he didn't seem to be very close to the Lord. And as time went by, the gap between Saul and the Lord grew and we saw Saul in rebellion against God. He wanted to do things his own way and he became godless. He was a God-fearing man uh, in name and for show, but inwardly his heart was not for God at all. He didn't desire to be right in God's eyes and cared more for how others saw him and and for his throne more than anything else. And in the end, Saul became the very king that the people had sought. He was a king like the other nations, a godless king, a king in rebellion against the Lord. And so as Israel loses the battle and loses the king that they sought, we actually see that God will not allow his people to be led by a man in rebellion against him. The people cannot have a king like the other nations. Instead, he must be a king after God's own heart. He must submit himself to the Lord and keep the Lord's commands. And Israel was now facing the consequences. And in some ways, things are actually worse than they were before Saul became king. This passage isn't speaking about our current circumstances. This isn't about the government in Australia or Victoria or in other countries. Israel was the people of God alone. This is a question of who should rule the people of God. The parallel today would not be about the head of state and country, but about who rules the church? And the answer to that question is Jesus Christ, who is God. Israel suffered that day for their rejection of God. An interesting thing about this passage is the way in which it echoes a lot of things that happened the last time Israel lost a battle like this. We saw this all the way back at the beginning of 1 Samuel when Eli and his sons died on the same day and Israel suffered a great loss. The Philistines destroyed the Israelites on the battlefield. And you see, on that day, a similar judgment fell upon the priestly line of Eli because he was in rebellion against the Lord, because his sons were in rebellion against the Lord and they would not repent of it. They had profaned the sacrifices of the Lord and were leading the people astray and would not repent of it. 
And so in one day, with the Philistines as his tool, the Lord brought judgment upon Eli and his sons and upon Israel, who had been led apart from the Lord. The parallels do not end there, though. When Eli and his sons died, the people wanted to win the battle against the Philistines. And they, the Philistines had far superior forces. So what they did is they grabbed the Ark of the Covenant, a symbol of God's presence, and they thought, let's take that into battle because that will ensure we will win. It was like trying to twist God's arm into being on their side or even looking at the Ark of the Covenant itself as God. They believed that the Ark would bring them victory. And God wasn't with them. They lost the battle and the Ark of the Covenant in which the people had put their trust was captured by the Philistines and taken away and placed in the temple of the Philistine gods. And when Saul and his sons died, something very similar happens. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head and stripped off his armour and they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among their people. They put his armour in the temple of the Ashtoreths and fastened his body to the wall of Beth Shan. You see, the people of Israel put their trust in the kingship of Saul. Saul would win their battles. Saul would lead them. But the king in whom they place their trust and his sons are killed. Their bodies are hung on the walls of the cities of their army, of their enemy. And the king's armour, the armour of the godless king, is put into the temple of the Philistine gods. You see, trusting in the king when the king is not with God is as helpful as trusting in the Ark of the Covenant when God is not with you. A godless king cannot be king of God's people. If Israel were to be kept safe, they needed a king who actually had a relationship with God. And for the Philistines, this was a great victory. They loved it. They had a party. They were celebrating and patting each other on the back. They were declaring this good news that the king of Israel had been slain and his sons were slain. It was the end of that royal house that had given them so much trouble. They celebrated that the God of Israel had proven to be less powerful than their own gods. They were enjoying it. And they did that last time too. They took the Ark of the Covenant and had it placed in their own temple, but the celebrations didn't last. The Lord brought his own vengeance against the Philistines and plagues ran through the city and, and the image of their God at first fell before the Ark and then it was broken in pieces, its head and its hands coming off. And they sent the Ark from city to city, but wherever it was taken, disaster followed. And in the end, the Philistines conceded the battle to the Lord and sent the Ark home. They had no idea of what God was doing. They, they were blind to God's plans. They didn't know that the ark was sent away so that the people of God would repent. They didn't know. They thought they had won. They thought they actually had something to do with the victory. But it was the Lord who made it so. 
And now with the death of Saul and the defeat of Israel, again, the Philistines think, this is great, we've done so well. But they didn't win. See, the Lord was just carrying out his own plans again. God was actually replacing one king with another and disciplining his people who desired a king like the other nations. The end of Israel's king and his sons was not the end of Israel. It wasn't even really a victory for the Philistines. There was already another king in waiting, a better king. A king who would bring the wrath of God against the Philistines. The rejoicing of the Philistines was misplaced. While the Philistines rejoiced, the Israelites mourned. It was a massive loss. A lot of sons were killed. A lot of families had to flee their homes. All Israel would have been mourning their loss and many would have despaired. But even as Israel mourned, we know from reading through 1 Samuel that the Lord has it in hand. We know. A much better king is already waiting and about to take his place on the throne. And so there was reason for those remaining in Israel to have hope. They might have felt despair. They might have been mourning their loss. But the faithful already knew that David would one day be king. We know that because we saw Nabal's wife actually declare that. These people would have seen the failure of Israel and the death of Saul and his sons not as a sign that Israel was coming to an end like the Philistines would have hoped, but a sign that the time had come for David to become king. And they knew the certainty of it because they knew that the Lord was with David. There was real hope for those who remained in Israel. Another king was coming, a better king. You see, the right king is the king who is better than Saul. The right king is the king who has a relationship with God. And already in 1 Samuel, we've seen David being raised up by the Lord to be that king. Already it has been said of David that he is a man after God's own heart. We've seen David face trouble after trouble and though he hasn't always looked to the Lord every time he should have, he often seeks the Lord and he never sought to be away from the Lord. He seeks to be in the Lord's favour. He wants to do the Lord's will. He has a heart for the Lord and he has a heart for the people of the Lord and the Lord is with him and has remained with him. So even as Israel loses this battle and is forced out of the land that the Lord had given to them, already the Lord has a better king on the way. But we also know that David is not perfect. He may not disregard the Lord or rebel against him as Saul did, but it doesn't mean that David is not prone to sin and prone to error. One day he's protecting a fellow Israelite's sheep and the next day he's looking to take that same fellow's life because of an insult. One day he's so confident in the relationship he has with the Lord that he can waltz into the camp of Saul with all his thousands of men surrounding him and know that he's going to walk in freely and walk away safely. And then the next day 
He's fleeing into Philistine territory, looking to protect his life. But even with David, the pattern has always been the closer he is to the Lord, the better the decisions he makes, the better the outcomes for those around him. The closer the king is to God, the better things are for God's people. In the end, David wouldn't be enough. Where we've seen David waver, he will fail. And his failures will bring hardship to the people of God. Even David is not the right king for the people of God. He is a better king than Saul by far. But still not the right king. Over time, the faithful people of God would long for the right king. And now that king has come. It is Jesus. And in Jesus, we have a a king who is better than Saul and better than David. We have the perfect king. He has the perfect relationship with God because he is God's son. Because he is God. He and God, the father, are, are one. And now he reigns over the people of God. Who are his people? Who is the church? This is us. And we wait for a king no longer. In that day, there was hope for those living in Israel because a better king was coming. But there was also hope for the lost, for those who had died. Verse 11 says, When the people of Jabesh-Gilead heard of what the Philistines had done to Saul... All their valiant men journeyed through the night to Bethshan. They took down the bodies of Saul and his sons from the wall of Bethshan and went to Jabesh where they burned them. Then they took their bones and buried them under a tamarisk tree at Jabesh and they fasted seven days. What are you talking about, Greg? Where's the hope in that? Well, these valiant men of Jabesh Gilead go into enemy territory and they take back the bodies of Saul and his sons and they bury them in the land of Israel. At great risk to their own lives, they seek to bring Saul and his sons back. The men of Jabesh Gilead would have remembered Saul at his best. It was their town which looked to Saul for help. They were under attack by the Ammonites and they sent out messengers to ask for help and Saul was the one who answered. The Spirit of God came upon him and he gathered all of Israel to repel the Ammonites from Jabesh Gilead and rescue the people there. And it was on that day that Saul was accepted as king by all the people of Israel. And the men of Jabesh Gilead would certainly remember that day. And now they saw the fate of Saul and his sons, their their bodies hung on the city wall of Bethshan in the Philistine lands. And they took courage and stole back the bodies and brought them home. The place of burial was important for the Israelites. When Abraham died, he was buried in the promised land. He even bought a plot of land specifically for that purpose because it had not yet been given to him by the Lord. And when Jacob died, they buried his body, not in Egypt, but back in the promised land. And Joseph, before he died, told his fellow Israelites to make sure that his bones were returned to the promised land when they were finally able to return there. 
And here the men of Jabesh-Gilead ensure that the bodies of Saul and his sons are returned to the promised land. Why all of that? Well, the people of Israel were the people of God. They were the the church in those days. They were the visible representation of the heavenly reality of God's people. And the land in which they lived, the promised land, was the earthly representation of the heavenly reality of a place for God's people. The promised land was where God would dwell with his people. It was meant to be heavenly a land flowing with milk and honey. A land where there would, everyone would sit under his own tree at peace. And to the extent that it symbolised that, it was fit that the men of Jabesh Gilead would bring back the bodies of Saul and his sons to be buried in Israel. Because to be buried in the promised land was a sign of hope, that in death, that they would actually dwell in God's presence that they would be by his side. David spoke of that back in chapter 26 when he said, do not let my blood fall to the ground far from the presence of the Lord. He knew that the Lord was present everywhere, but he wanted to be back in Israel when he died because that's where God's presence was. And he held the hope that in death he would dwell with the Lord. We, of course, hold the same hope today. But we don't show that by wanting to be buried in Israel because, well, as we know, Israel no longer represents the place where God's people dwell. That has ended with the coming of Jesus. The people of God are not limited to Israel and the Jewish people are not the people of God while they reject Christ. And we no longer hope for a peaceful land on earth with an earthly king that points towards some future hope because we already have our king. We already live in the reign of King Jesus who has promised to prepare a place for us, not here, but in his father's house. But for Saul and his sons, the return of their bodies to the promised land pointed toward that future hope that they would live on in the presence of their Heavenly Father. Whether Saul would in the end be part of Christ's heavenly kingdom, I do not know. There was no sign of repentance, no sign of a faith in a God who so readily saves. Did Saul in his last moments turn from his sin and seek the Lord who forgives? We cannot know. It's not written for us to know. We've been tracing that question a bit as we progress through 1 Samuel and at times we've been closer to seeing it one way and other times it's gone the other way. And there are some who are saved in their last moments. That famous thief on the cross stands as a testimony to that possibility. But the fact that there is a possibility that we could be forgiven our sins at all, that should amaze us. Because if we are like anyone in this passage, we are closer to Saul than David. And we are much like the people of Israel who themselves rebelled against the Lord when they sought a king 
like the godless kings of other nations. We have surely rebelled against the Lord and done the opposite of what he has called us to do. Just like Saul, just like all of Israel. We failed to carry out the Lord's instructions just like Saul. We've probably all been jealous at various times just like Saul. We've sought to rule our own lives rather than to submit to the Lord like all Israel. We've committed sins before our Lord and God. Why should we be saved? The judgment of the Lord comes down upon sinners. It comes down upon the wicked. It ought to come down on us. Then there's Jesus. He took upon himself everything that should have come to us. He took it upon himself on that cross. And now through him, you can be forgiven. He can bring you to God. He can ensure that your life in eternity is spent with your heavenly father. That you can be forgiven for all of your sins. If you repent and turn to him, you will find that forgiveness. You will be at peace with God. And once you are in him, he will never let you go. Never. When you are in Jesus, you will share in the reality of the heavenly kingdom. You'll have a place to live in God's presence forever. And this ultimately is the hope of this passage. Not only that a king would come, but that salvation would come. That, that even though we die, we might still come to live in God's presence for eternity. And all these hopes find their fulfilment in Jesus. Where are your hopes placed? Are they in Jesus? Are they in the only one who can rightly lead and rule God's people? Because if your hopes are in him, you will never be put to shame. The people of God may suffer from time to time in this world, but we have a rock of hope in Jesus who can never be shaken, can never be moved, who will always be our king, who will never fail us, who will rescue us and protect us and lead us into his heavenly kingdom. What a wonderful saviour. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord, our Heavenly Father, uh, we, uh, we thank you for all we have in Jesus, a King who saves, a, a Lord who rescues, a saviour from the cross, a, a friend, an advocate, someone who intercedes for us with you and, and so much more. He's preparing a place for us in your house. Oh, we thank you. We praise you. Lord, we pray for those, our loved ones, our family, our
our friends with whom we've been sharing the gospel. Lord, may they know Jesus as we know him. May they know their sin as we know our own. May they come to have a place secured in heaven with us by Christ's hand. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.